Hello, and welcome to the Laverne Church of Christ podcast, and thank you for joining us. You can find us at 244 Old Nashville Highway, Laverne, Tennessee, 37086. We hope that any time you are in the area, you will stop by and join us for worship. Our Sunday morning worship is at 9 a.m., with Bible classes following. Our Sunday evening worship is at 6 p.m., and we also have a Bible study on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Uh, scripture this this evening will be First Corinthians one ten. First Corinthians one ten, page ten twelve, and I forgot my glasses, so sorry. I'll get there. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Amen. See everyone here tonight. Glad you're able to be with us on this Sunday evening service. Let me make sure my uh, this mic is working properly. Uh, okay, let's see. Mute, not mute. Anyway, I'm going to stay right here. Forget it. Oh, can you? Well, that's because I'm standing here. Uh, but anyway, I'm just going to stay here and not worry about it because I want to get into this lesson tonight. We are in our series on Sunday nights by the book. And, and the book that we are presently studying is the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the first chapter. But if you'd like to, you can follow along on the screen. Our text tonight, picking up where we left off, is 1 Corinthians 1, 14 through 31. And this is the longest stretch of text that we've had so far in this series. Uh, but we're going to focus on certain aspects of it with more detail than others. But we are going to complete chapter 1 tonight, Lord willing. Uh, Paul begins, 1 Corinthians 1, 14, uh, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Verse 16, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now that's our text, and it's another important stone that is being laid in the foundation of the pathway that Paul is crafting by the Holy Spirit throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. And I want us to go back there to the beginning, verses 14 through 18, and I want you to notice verse 17. Now this is right on the hills of Paul asking the summary question about the division that had already begun to take place in the, the church at Corinth in the ancient world. He asked them a question, were you, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And, and of course it's a, it's a rhetorical question because the, the people in Corinth were saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And, and Paul's point is that if you are a Christian, you're Christ, and that's all there is to it. You weren't baptized in anybody else's name, so don't call yourself by anybody else's name. And uh, we, of course, could apply that lesson in quite a number of ways. But that's the point that Paul makes. And so then, the, with the next breath, this is where he begins to say, I'm thankful I didn't baptize more of you than I did. This is kind of the way we might say it today. Well, I'm grateful to God that I didn't baptize more of you than I did. And he lists a couple of the folks in Corinth there that he knows that he personally baptized. And, and he almost uh, forgets the household of Stephanus, bless their hearts. It's just like an after the, oh yeah, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, uh, which is a wonderful insight into the way that the, uh, that the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures. Paul was not a robot writing the word. He was writing the word from his own mind and his own heart and his own thoughts overseen by the Holy Spirit. That's the nature of inspiration. And so Paul, dictating his letter to whoever was writing it for him, says, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. And, and he's not going to think about it anymore. Besides that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else because that's not my point. And he gets to his point in, in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, this is a classic example, the Apostle Paul trying to set things right. You probably at some time in your past have heard the statement, uh, don't put the cart before the horse, right? Carts don't pull horses. Horses pull carts. Baptism doesn't precede faith. Faith precedes baptism. And faith is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no point in the world of dunking anybody in water if they haven't come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And frankly, even if someone has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, but, but that hearing has not created faith in their heart, if they decide, if you decide that you're just going to go out and baptize people who have not come to faith in Jesus and have not got to the point that they're willing to submit themselves, their will, to the leadership and guidance of Jesus, then it is a waste of time to baptize them. Because baptism is an act of faith. And this is the point that Paul is talking about here. 
He is wanting his readers. And that certainly originally meant the church of Christ in the ancient city of Corinth. But by virtue of this being now collected in the inspired canon of scripture, it speaks to all Christians everywhere, including us here at Laverne Church of Christ. Paul wants us to understand. The Holy Spirit wants us to understand. God wants us to understand the proper order and the proper place of things. The gospel is, in no uncertain terms, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. You, if you are saved, are saved by the gospel. You're saved because Jesus died for you. You're saved because even though they buried him in a tomb and sealed it and set a Roman guard around it so that the Jews that they thought might come and steal it and say Jesus had risen from the dead because everybody knew that Jesus had prophesied that he would rise from the dead. But the guards couldn't stop it. The weight of the stone couldn't stop it. All the power of Satan couldn't stop it. An angel of God rolled the stone away and Jesus came back to life and walked forth from the tomb. And that is the basis of your salvation. If you are saved, you are saved by a man, not just by a plan. If you are saved, you are saved by the will of the one who died for you and his grace. And even more so, you're saved because he rose from the dead and you are in him. And therefore, in Christ, in a sense, you have already risen from the dead. And this is what baptism means. Now, of course, there are folks that will misuse this portion of uh, the, the epistle to the Corinthians, Paul's letters to the Corinthians, as they say, see, see here, baptism is not so important. All you people in the church of Christ going on about baptism, 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 you see Paul here saying, baptism doesn't matter. That is just not a sound conclusion to draw from this section. There's nothing in this context where Paul says baptism doesn't matter. But what Paul is doing is putting baptism in its proper place. And let me say this. Those of us with roots in churches of Christ need to hear that. We need to hear that. Rebaptism is something that is more rampant probably. I don't know that anybody's done empirical evidence on this. But based on my experience and conversations with people from within the churches of Christ and from without, rebaptism is sometimes just epidemic among us. And there's a reason for that. The reason is because of legalistic teaching on the subject of baptism. The reason is because many of us in Churches of Christ have heard really articulate and detailed sermons on baptism in which every nuance of meaning of baptism, it's genuinely scriptural meaning, nobody's debating that, but in which every nuance of meaning of baptism is preached and taught and that's right to do. But unfortunately, oftentimes it's done in a way that leads people to think, well, if I didn't understand that about baptism, my baptism couldn't be valid. And so we have folks that are, in fact, baptized believers, sincere, devoted followers of Jesus who will go through their life and at certain periods of time when they hear a, a powerful sermon on baptism saying baptism is for this, because of this, for this reason, and you need to know all of that. And folks out there are wrong because they don't affirm that and they don't teach that. And, and look, that kind of preaching needs to be done, but not in the way that makes genuinely baptized believers feel like that baptism is a, is a matter of human performance. Baptism does not save you as a work that you do in order to earn God's love. God already loves you or you would have never had the offer of being baptized into Christ. Baptism is simply an expression 
of the grace of God and giving us this opportunity to unite ourselves in faith or to be united by God in faith with the the Savior who died for us and was buried and who rose from the dead. And baptism is literally an acting out of the gospel. That's all it is, and that's ultimately what it means. When someone is baptized, they are saying, I now wish to identify with the dying of Jesus, and and that for me is going to mean that I'm making the decision now to die to myself, that no longer am I going to live just the way that I feel is right or, or doing the things that I want to do, living in a way that meets my expectations of life, but now I'm going to live the way that Jesus teaches me to live. I'm dead now, and Christ is alive in me, Galatians 2 and verse 20. And I'm going to see myself as just as Jesus got up from the dead and walked forth from that tomb. In a sense, I've already done that with him as well. The old man of sin was died and buried with him. And I, I, I've been raised up with Christ and I walked out of the tomb. And now I'm living a new life and a new way in Jesus' way. And this teaches me that on the last day I will literally walk forth from my tomb. Whatever it may happen to be. And I'll live that perfect life that he's now living as well. Baptism is is an identification with Jesus, and yes, it is essential to salvation in all cases that we can read about in the Bible. Yes, it is for the forgiveness of sins. It is also for receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. But oftentimes, the the one reason given in Acts 2.38 has been made the litmus test of a works-based concept of baptism. Yes, even in the church of our Lord. If you did not precisely know that baptism was for the forgiveness of your sins, then you were baptized wrong and you better do it right. That is an unbiblical interpretation of the Bible's teachings on the subject of baptism. It took five, listen, brothers and sisters, it took 500 years for the providence of God to get the completed canon of Scripture all together bound up in single volumes in about half a dozen churches across the world. Did you hear that? Do you realize that there were whole Christian communities in the first and second and third and fourth centuries that may have had the Gospel of Mark and maybe a couple of Paul's letters and two or three of the general epistles, and that's what they had. It's all they had. If it was essential for you to be baptized right, For you to know every nuance of teaching on the subject of baptism communicated throughout the whole New Testament, then the providence of God would have seen to it that every single book of the New Testament was in the hands of every congregation from the start. That's the way the providence of God works. Now, that doesn't mean that baptism wasn't what it is. It simply means that if you're in a community that has the gospel of Mark, and that's what you've got, and you read through the gospel of Mark, and what do you come to? Mark 16, 16, right? He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. So let me ask you, those people that received the gospel of Mark and didn't have the other stuff yet, didn't mean the other stuff wasn't true. just means they didn't have it, and therefore they didn't know it. But what they had, they knew, and what they had, they followed. So let's say you hear a sermon about baptism coming from Mark 16, and all it says is believe and be baptized and you will be saved. Let me ask you, everybody who responds to the invitation of that sermon and says, well, I believe, baptize me, are they saved or not? Well, if you believe the Bible, and you believe that Mark 16, 16 is the Bible, and you respect the providence of God and the way that it has unfolded in history, you're going to recognize those folks are Christians. 
And when they got a copy of the book of Acts and read Acts 2.38 and found out that it was for the forgiveness of sins and receipt of the gift of the Holy Spirit, they don't need to go be rebaptized because they didn't know that. They just need to say, oh, cool, that's what happened when I was baptized. And that's the proper interpretation of the teaching on baptism that the Apostle Paul is trying to convey here. And that's the same one that we need to live in and teach as members of the Lord's church. We must affirm everything the Bible says about baptism. But these are just statements of what it does, promises of what God does when someone is baptized, not preconditions to someone being baptized, right? And I want you to understand that I, I do not speak these words harshly because I was baptized at age 11, and I had been taught well and I knew what was right. But the 10 years that followed that, because I started falling in with a bad crowd at age 11, and for the next 10 years until the age of 21, I was not living right. And by the time I came back to the Lord at age 21, I felt so distant and removed from that 11-year-old kid. And growing as a Bible student in that phase, I was still very legalistic in my approach to scriptures and feared being condemned if I was slightly wrong about any little thing because that's the environment I was raised up in and what I was taught to believe, not by my parents but by the church environment that I was raised in. I'm not speaking in a condemning way. I'm just saying we're all humans, and we're in a community of people all striving to be right with God, and we don't always understand everything as well as we should. And so I was rebaptized, and I'm glad I was, because it's what I needed to do at that phase in my growth and development. But just a few years after that, I would learn a little more about the grace of God and about what the Bible teaches about baptism, and I realize now that in the grand scheme of things, I probably didn't need to be rebaptized. And the point I want to get across to you all is not to see the promises of God as conditions that you're to, to meet if you're going to be saved. What God says about baptism are promises, things that he will do when, when a person is baptized. And he does them because of what baptism means and because of what it points to, not because of some legalistic system that says you better understand the details or God won't save you. That is blasphemy against the grace of God. And I can't communicate it any other way besides that. If you're saved, you're saved by Jesus. You're saved by him personally. And yes, there are terms that you must meet that are expressions of faith. And baptism is one of them. And Paul is not arguing against that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He's simply telling us not to put the cart before the horse. And if more people are taught the truth of the gospel really taught the gospel, they'll be baptized right. And if they continue to be taught the truth of the gospel, they won't be doubting that God keeps his promises as they're in the process of trying to grow in Christ. And I hope that makes sense. Don't put the cart before the horse. We preach the gospel, not baptism. And only in doing things in that way does baptism have its proper place in the life of the church. Continuing there in verse 20, uh, the Apostle Paul is really talking in this context, and this is going to lead us in to what we will begin uh, in, in two weeks, Lord willing, when we get into chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, where he is trying to, to get us all to recognize our place in the grand scheme of things with regard to what we understand and what we don't, and who's wise and who's not. And so laying the groundwork for that, he's, he's saying, look, you guys are following these teachers because you think they're so great, and I personally do think Paul is so great. And I also think Peter is so great, or Cephas. And I also, frankly, am a big fan of Apollos. I love everything I read about Apollos. He's the one that I tried to model myself after when I was a young preacher trying to figure out who I wanted to be. 
because the book of Acts says he was an eloquent man. In other words, a good speaker and mighty in the scriptures. And so those are the two things that I've tried to become. And whether I've succeeded or that, you tell me. Your opinion is probably going to depend upon how long I preach on any particular Sunday. But that's just the way it goes. All right? I love him. I love what the Bible says about him. I can't wait to meet him. But none of these men are my Lord. I mean, Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. Just as he's Paul's Lord and Cephas' Lord and Apollos' Lord, all who are very much alive to him still until this day. And because of what he has done for them and for me, then, then if the Lord's return is delayed and this body sleeps in the grave, I will continue to be very much alive to him as well. And just as their future resurrection is guaranteed, so will mine be. But the point that Paul is asking here is, who are these men? He'll culminate this argument in chapter 4. I'm not going to put the cart before the horse there. We'll get to it when we get to it. But he's beginning to ask the question, well, who are these men anyway? Where is the one who is wise? You got any true wise people among you at Laverne Church of Christ? He might ask that question. Where is the scribe? You know, this refers to the, the, the Jewish men who were experts in the law and who copied the books of the Old Testament especially. And so that tradition comes in the New Testament as well. That's how we have the New Testament passed on and trans, transferred from the first century until us today. Thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts. But he's asking the question about the general perspective of a scribe, a learned man, one who was a sage in the word and knew it well. He says, where is he? Where is the person who really, truly understands the word of God perfectly? Why, he's not among you. He's not among us here. Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The idea here is that the church at Corinth were where they were genuinely loving Jesus and trying to follow Jesus, but they were trying to be Jesus' people in boxes and pathways and, and, and cultural ideals that came from the world and not from God. They were beginning to bring worldly ideas into the experience of their life in the church, and Paul is saying, that's foolish. That's not the direction that uh, Jesus would have you to go. He comes down to verse 22, for Jews demand he says, four here, for I will destroy. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I forget that, forget that, forget that, forget that, forget that, forget that. There we go. <laughs> for Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. Oh, that is the summary of our message. It's an example of synecdoche, which is a ridiculously unnecessary word that simply means the part stands for the whole. Christ crucified is not literally the only words that ever come out of our mouths. But brothers and sisters, if everything we're saying isn't rooted in and based on and coming from and spinning back around to get back to the crucifixion of Christ, it's not gospel preaching because people's hearts are changed at the foot of the cross. That is the message that begins that process of transformation that makes a sinner into a saint. And the cross has got to be at the center of everything that we say and everything that we do. And so we saw, you saw as I flipped through it real quick, what people in the world seek. They seek this, they seek that, but. And this is in contrast. What we do as the church, and listen, brothers and sisters, may it ever be the case. What we do in the church is always countercultural to the way that the world does things. We need to be very careful about learning wisdom from the world, about how organizations work and how to run them efficiently and thinking that that stuff will just, you know, can just be ported on into the church and put in practice just the way that it works in some kind of 
corporation. It doesn't work that way. The church isn't a company. Some people say the church isn't a business. Well, not in that sense. The church is about the business of the Father, just as Jesus was in the temple when he was 12. But it's not a business that runs the way that the businesses of the world do. And so we preach that not necessarily what world, worldly people want, but we preach, at least at first, what they need. And later when their hearts have been changed, they will learn to want what it is that God offers through his word. Now I want you to notice two words here. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And I'm going to come back to these two words, power and wisdom, especially as they are applied to Jesus Christ here in this context. Uh, the, the, the last part of, of the section in verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. You see, really the heart of this text is to give us insight into what truly is wisdom. Wisdom that leads ultimately to salvation. And I would attach this section to the question of what, what is a successful life. And I, I do appreciate that our kids here in Kids Sing every Sunday are being asked that question. What is a successful life? Because that is the central question of this life. And, and of course to live life goes without saying. But go to heaven ultimately when you die or when the Lord returns. I mean, that's, that is it. That's the whole of it. If you miss that, you've missed it all, and you're an utter failure. It doesn't matter if you were a billionaire in this life, because you can't take a dollar of it with you. And so, do we want to be successful people? Is it appropriate for us to seek to be successful people as the disciples of Christ? Well, of course it is. But we need to understand what true wisdom is. And it's all about choices. It is all about choices. Life is a series of choices with unavoidable consequences. And as we make ours, we need to recognize our limitations. And here we come back to these two words that are applied to Jesus because there are two central issues when it comes to the question of will I be a success? And at the end of my life, will I will God consider me to have lived successfully before him? Those two two words, two central issues are the issue of wisdom and the issue of power. In other words, uh, do I have the ability to see how the road that I'm presently walking on is going to end. Because that, in a nutshell, is what wisdom is. Wisdom is the ability before or as you're embarking on a particular journey in life, symbolic journey in life, going to work this particular way, driving this particular way, relating to your husband or wife this particular way, raising your children this particular way, you know, interacting with your neighbors in this particular way interacting or disobeying or obeying the law of the land in this particular way. Whatever journey that you may be particularly thinking about in your life, the question is, the way that you're walking on that journey is going to end in a certain way. Can you tell how that is going to end? That's wisdom. If you're like, I really don't know where I'm going. I'm just going with the flow. Those are the words of a fool. Because that is just about as sure a way to end your life as a failure as there possibly can be. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it. If you're not going anywhere, you'll, you'll get nowhere. 
And that ultimately applies to spiritual realities as well as it does to figure uh, to figurative spiritual types of realities here. And so wisdom is extremely important. You've got to know how the particular journey that you're taking is going to end. A and if the journey that you're on is not going to end well, then you have got to get out of that journey and get on a different road, one that leads to a destination that you would consider successful. And you've got to have the power, the power to make it all the way to the end of that journey. The power to continue walking along step by step by step. Oftentimes we talk about Christianity as a marathon, not as a sprint. And for most of us it will be a marathon. A life lived in service to Jesus with continual and, and new and changing temptations coming our way. Challenges that, that are different with each phase of life that we live in. And those come with their own sort of nuances of, uh, of opportunities to be loyal to Jesus or to be disloyal to Jesus. And lots of little ways that mount up into big things. And of course with a few really big ones too that some of us sadly fall prey to. Do you have the wisdom to know? how to be on the road that ends in the right destination, and do you have the power to successfully make that journey? Ultimately, these two qualifications for success are entirely tied to Jesus. And the point that Paul is making is that we need to know our limitations because you and I don't have the wisdom to get to heaven on our own. And you and I do not have the power to live the Christian life in the way that pleases God without his help. It's not within your mortal frame to be able to accomplish the will of God successfully based in the power of your own humanity. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is a proven path to success. It is the only path to success that the grace of God has made available to us. And we saw what the Jews wanted. They demanded, rather, Paul says, they demanded signs. We will not believe unless you meet our demands. That was, in essence, the voice of Israel to Jesus. And he said, I won't meet your demands. I'll give you the sign of the prophet Jonah, which is the last sign that they wanted. Because Jonah is the most unkind book in the whole Old Testament to the mindset of the Jews. Powerful, right? Powerful power. That's exactly what they wanted to have in their own hands and refused to give up in order to embrace the true power and the salvation, Jesus the Messiah that they didn't like. Wisdom. The Greeks, the Gentiles, seek wisdom. In other words, the Gentile world wants to know. We want to know stuff that gives us an advantage over our competition in life. And, and the nature of our Gentile world, the broad Gentile world, is that we want to achieve you know, great qualifications. We want miles of letters behind our names because that makes us feel like we're important. We want to be considered experts in our field of employment, of profession, or of study, whatever it may happen to be. And we want the world to come to us as experts and say, you are the great sage here. That's, that was the world of the Greeks of Paul's time, and it had to change. In fact, our world today is full of both Jews and Gentiles, regardless of their ethnic ancestry. And the whole of the human family is divided into those two kinds of people. God, I'll follow you if you meet me on my terms and do things in my way. God, I will follow you if you exalt me and give me knowledge that will uh, enable me to, to rise above my peers, that they'll see I'm better than them. And those are the ways of the world. But in all of this, Paul puts their feet on the ground 
is leading to the argument that if that's the way that you're going to approach life, you're going to fail because you're fools, all of you, and you're powerless. You're powerless fools. What is a human being compared to God but a powerless fool? And the path to wisdom and the power to succeed in life comes by recognizing that and bowing the knee and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When our lives are summed up in Jesus Christ because we have trusted in his plan to save us, he becomes the wisdom because trusting in Jesus leads to success. He becomes the power because the blood of Christ overcomes all of our sins and all of the damning case that could be made against us on judgment day. And through him, brothers and sisters, we are able to succeed and only through him are we able to succeed. And so Paul sums up his argument, no human being might boast in the presence of God. You're saved. You're saved because of his grace. You're saved because of his mercy toward you and of his infinite patience. Not because you're wise and not because you're powerful. Brothers and sisters, the lesson for us is to boast in the Lord or not at all. What do people boast about in this life? They boast about their abilities, perhaps, accomplishments, their connections. It's all about success and the power to achieve it. That's what people boast about, their successes and the power that they think they have to succeed yet even more. And they love it all the more when you have not accomplished what they have and they can use that to exalt themselves into a position of superiority over you. That's the devil's personality in the way of the world. Those of us in Christ know better, right? God, there's an old saying, you know the saying, y'all can switch the prayers if you want. There's an old saying, God helps those who help themselves. Heard that before? You will never find that from Genesis to Revelation because on the surface it is striking comparison. No, no, no. We're helpless, brothers and sisters, outside of Christ. Helpless. The ones that God helps enable them to help themselves are those who realize their helplessness and run to Jesus for refuge. You will never become capable of living life in a successful way until you admit you cannot do it on your own. Run to Jesus for refuge. And the opportunity is yours tonight. If you don't yet know him as Lord and haven't named him in the good Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. If you have any questions, please email them to us at office at lavernecoc.org. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we hope you have a blessed day.